Welcome to the podcast, Speak Your Peace. This is a podcast about Utah's history. My name is Brad Westwood, and I work for the Utah Department of Heritage and Arts. Today's guest is Amy Berry from the Utah Division of State History. In our previous uh, segment, we spoke about the program, the State Cemetery and Burial Database. Now we're going to tell some stories, and we're going to ask Amy to lead out with one right now. Oh, wonderful. I really did a little bit of focus for our 100th year anniversary coming up of the 19th Amendment that granted women the right to vote. Uh, We're calling that Better Days here in Utah. And I will lead off by saying Utah actually was a pretty uh, good vanguard for women's voting rights. 1871st, even though Wyoming had uh, something going on, uh, the person who got to the ballot box first was in Utah. Yes, and so we have a really great representation of some wonderful stories of women who made a really strong contribution during that time, uh, not only to our state government, but also then to the effort of suffrage. Uh, We all hear about Martha Hughes Cannon Mm -hmm. and her wonderful, compelling run for the Utah State Senate and running against her husband. But I like to focus on some of the lesser known stories that that have been forgotten over time or just weren't as well-known. And so we'll start off with Sarah Elizabeth Nelson Anderson. and She was born in Kaysville to David Nelson and Sarah Brown. She was born in 1853, so she was really early to mm-hmm. Utah in our history. She would go on to marry a man, Porter Lee, who became a doctor, or Porter Lee Anderson. She was 17. She had five children. And her husband passed away in 1888. So she was a widow, very young, five children to raise. But it didn't stop her from being really engaged in in her community. She became very well-known and really popular in Ogden and Weber County. And she ran uh, for the legislature during that same time of Martha Hughes Cannon. But she ran for the state house, and she won in, 19, in 1896. So the compelling thing about Sarah, though, is that in Utah, women were voting in elections during the time we were a territory, but that was taken away from us mm-hmm. with the Edmonds-Tucker Act. Yeah. This yes. act left women out of national, state, and local elections. However, this question of statehood, which was before Utah, was not spelled out in the Edmonds-Tucker Act. So Sarah... Uh, who was also a very vocal suffragist, decided to challenge this question. And she attempted to cast her vote in the Ogden's second precinct. She was denied. They turned her away. And she filed a lawsuit stating that she was voting for statehood. She wasn't voting in a national, state, or local election because they were not a state. Mm -hmm. Uh, She ultimately lost that court fight. But it set the stage for this larger battle. And she laid the foundation for women in Utah to regain that right to vote in all elections. Now, where is her her headstone? So she is buried in the Ogden City Cemetery. She died in 1900. Um, she was part of that women's wave in the second Utah state legislature, as I said, in 1896, mm-hmm. along with Eurethe um, Labarth. They were elected to the second legislature. Eureth um, is buried outside of, she's buried in Colorado. So she's not somebody I bio, but she made an, another important contribution to women's presence 
in local politics. Um, she, Eliz or Sarah, promptly served as a chairperson for the Committee on Public Health, which was kind of where was a domain women were seen to be okay. So it was kind of having a voice movement in. thing where yeah. health and child care and so on seemed to be the and, province and of women. And in Utah, it was women who were leading that charge as mm -hmm. nurses and rural health care providers. They were leading that charge of public health and, and sanitary methods and all of those things. So that was a domain that was safe for women. But uh, she made her mark. Unfortunately, she didn't live long enough to continue her political career. Uh, and she is resting in Ogden. Wow. Hey, what a great story. Uh, with 2020 and so many, uh, uh, so many things going on about the history uh, of uh, the suffrage movement in Utah. I mean, there is this unique story in Utah. It's uh, um, because of the layers of, of issues, uh, um, the resistance of the nation to give uh, uh, offer statehood to Utah, uh, polygamy. Um, there was a certain level of independence and uh, a lot of growth of um, because of polygamy, because of the prior votes uh, uh, or access to voting. Um, Utah's story was somewhat different than the West, and um, I, I think we're going to tell a lot more about that in the in the future. But here's something that you can learn about. And where is that? Is that on your Facebook page? Amy? It was one of my Facebook posts. I mentioned in the previous podcast that our Facebook page, Utah State History, I run the Monday Facebook posts. <laughs> uh, so uh, it's buried in one of these Mondays, but I tell a different story every Monday. And she was one of them. So let's hear another story coming out of the Sexton records and out of the efforts of the state to, to track all these burials. What's your next story? Oh, my next story. What an amazing woman. Lucy Augusta Rice Clark. She was born in Farmington in 1850. She was the daughter of a farmer, William Kelsey Rice, and Lucy Witter Gear. And they were in Bountiful. She married a man named Timothy Clark again at the age of 17, but Lucy had 11 children. Wow. And I am daunted by just the fact of the thought of 11 children, but she had the energy of a hundred women. She became a charter member of the Utah women's press club, um, which was founded in 1891 and they, their mission was to further the literary development and interests of women. Uh, she was an active participant in the women's suffrage movement. She served as president of the Davis County Women's Suffrage Association, vice president of the state association, vice president of the Utah State Council of Women, and delegate to the National Suffrage Convention in D.C. She ran for office in the 3rd State Senate District in 1896, and she lost to Akila Nebuchadnezzar. And I always found this part uh, interesting. Nebuchadnezzar was quoted as saying that defeat would make me the laughing stock of the whole state. So this demonstrated that women's presence in politics wasn't always that welcomed. Mm -hmm. Even though we were at the forefront of women's rights to vote, that doesn't mean that these pioneering women in politics here were all that welcomed or that their presence in political races was seen as a, a good thing like we do today. So well, the, while she wasn't victorious, 
in her election, um, she did not suffer to be idle. She went on to be appointed the postmistress for Farmington in 1897, a position she held for seven years. Uh, she penned songs and poems throughout her whole life. Her obituary mentions that through her efforts, the town of Garland got a free library. Uh, she Her list of associations and accomplishments was so long, I had to cut it short. Mm. But you can't give her enough credit. Um, in honor of the 99th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, Lucy's words remind us, because I did this post a year ago, mm -hmm. remind us of the goal they held for women's suffrage. And she wrote, you are all aware that the statehood banquet of Utah has been prepared and every lo loyal citizen will be there waiting the bridegroom. He is not to be alone, but leaning upon his arms will be a beautiful and blushing bride, clothed in the robes of equality, carrying in her right hand the banner of justice, and beneath the orange blossoms which wreathe her noble brow will sparkle the word liberty. You know, it makes me think um, one of our speakers on uh, Speak Your Peace was uh, the historian Tom Alexander, who described that, um, you know, the past can often be confused with the present. We we tend to think that how we think our sensibilities uh, today, uh, we project them on those in the past. And he framed up for us how in the 19th century, uh, women were not able to, um, uh, to have hold contracts on land. They became, in a sense, almost like property. And I think the story of the, the vote in, the, in 1870 sort of speaks to this idea that, well, that must mean that Utah was different, but really it wasn't. It was very much part of 19th century America. There was so much deep discrimination, gender discrimination and so forth that uh, these stories make you aware of just how difficult, how socially hard it was to stand up for your rights and liberties. Our past and our present and most likely our future will always be layered that way. We'll have things we celebrate that show how progressive we were, how wonderfully forward-looking we were, and yet at the same time, there were things that were holding us back. That quest towards equality that, and liberty that Lucy references. So beautifully wrote and written. Yes, and, and, and it's got a lot of words in there that are very antiquated today. So sometimes <laughs> yeah, when I flowery. read it, I think, oh, I would never have said that. But this was her time. This was uh, written a long time ago, but it the pieces in it that speak are those keywords, equality, liberty, justice. Those were the things that they were fighting for because they didn't feel like they fully had them. And even though they continued to move forward with it, I feel like we're still moving forward mm -hmm. to those things, those mm -hmm. ideals, not just for women voting, but for LGBT people, for people of color, Absolutely. for all minorities. We continue that layer uh, that movement forward, that march forward. And I don't know that we will ever be congruent in all of those things at the same time, but we have a lot to celebrate, but we should always remember that didn't paint the whole picture. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think the value of pursuing history, studying it, and we've talked about this in this podcast, um, re really, if you got to sort out what we need to do in the future, you've got to understand the past. And um, there's a level of vigilance about knowledge and about history that's essential for, for good civic engagement. What great stories you're offering. Tell us another one, Amy. Hey, well, uh, Elise Fuhrer-Musser. She was born December 7th, 1877, 
in Switzerland. And I wrote down her hometown, but I would never be able to pronounce that. Uh, but she was born to Johanna Rudolf Führer and Anna, well, I guess it would be Johann Rudolf Führer and Anna Maria Bernhardt. And she was only three years old when her father died. She was the fourth of five children. And at the age of seven, she went to live with her father's sister, as many families did when they suffered the loss of mm -hmm. a parent. She Farmed uh, out to different family members. Right. She was farmed out uh, living in Lausanne. But she finally confided in her mother that her four years living with her aunt were not the happiest. And she was afraid to tell her mother that because the family was poor. They wouldn't be able to afford another mouth to feed. But it was not a happy place. Uh, when her mother found out, she wouldn't let her return to Lausanne. So she came back home to her hometown and lived with her family. Elise converted to Mormonism in her late teens on her own. She immigrated with, as she described, much hope and anticipation. She came along with an older brother, Rodolphe. She relates that her, and this is a quote, introduction to this country was a terrible experience. As no one came for her at the station at February 4th, 1897, and her and her brother stood there wondering what to do and where to go. Here, this was in Utah, in Salt Lake City, perhaps? Yes. She describes feeling lost and lonely. Uh, she stood there not knowing where to go. And they were actually taken in by a man named Arnold um, Schultheis. Uh, he found work for her as a servant in a couple of houses until she accompanied a man named George Nagel, who had been a mission president in Switzerland, and Octave Ersenbach to Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, her brother was originally supposed to go, but he got cold feet and then didn't want to travel. So George Nagel gave her his ticket. Octave decided not to stay because he realized what Nagel was doing. Um, he was forming a polygamous compound colony in Mexico. And when Octave left, he told Elise, I hope you enjoy <laughs> being a plural wife. And she had no idea what he was talking about. Nagel insisted that she remain, though, because he paid for her ticket. But she would not join mm. the colony, but she did end up working for them for a while because she had no other means. Um, she was So she was hired onto the family. But she eventually found work at a Polaris mining company as a bookkeeper. She saved up enough money to return back to the U.S. on her own and have a little bit of reserve to find something else mm -hmm. here, support herself. She went on to get a job with the county recorder. Here in Salt Lake County, she did interpreting um, and attended summer school during her vacation. So instead of vacation, she went and took summer or courses at the University of Utah. She married a man, Burton White Musser, um, in 1911, and he really desired to be a law clerk or, or a law student. And they ended up traveling all throughout the eastern states, D.C., Virginia, Philadelphia, Tennessee, and finally New York, where Burton went to Columbia University. But during the day, Elise would attend lectures at the university, even at, though she couldn't enroll as a student. At Columbia? Or, yes, mm -hmm. while her husband was in law school. They eventually returned to Utah. She gave birth to their only child, Bernard, in 1914. And so during her time, she describes as being a new mother. He took up a lot of her time, but she still found the an interest in time to go take classes back up at the University of Utah, and she gave all of her spare time to the Red Cross because this was during World War I time as well. Mm -hmm. 
But it was during this time, this is what I found really fascinating about Elise. She became acquainted with the neighborhood house, which uh, served to help immigrants. And it was in the Pioneer Park neighborhood. And her ability, she spoke French, German, and English, uh, was an immense asset. And she did a lot of work with the neighborhood house interpreting for those new immigrants, uh, doing a lot of work to help them get settled, uh, to teach them English. Um, At the request of Governor Dern, Utah Governor Dern's wife, Elise became very active in the Women's Democratic Club. Her work at the neighborhood house, she cared for children. That was became her specialty and working mothers. You know, women who have children but they're alone, can't work because they don't have child care. It's the same conundrum we face today, all those age-old and timeless stories. Uh, teenagers that were lurking for, looking for work, she helped shape uh, their efforts to do that, but it also shaped her ideas and her feelings around social issues. In 1932, she was again Governor Dern's uh, wife that nominated Elise to run for the state Senate, and she won. Mm. Elise Fuhrer-Musser passed the first child labor law in Utah, and she served from 1933 to 1937. So her work with uh, immigrant populations, I mean, uh, I think at the the Pioneer Park neighborhood area, around that time, there were probably up to 20 different languages spoke within a you know, a quarter of a mile. And uh, ostensibly, it was the international segment of Salt Lake City. It was also the home of the railroads and industry and squalor. And just the fact that she interacted with those communities, I'm sure it made her an even more uh, useful legislator. Yeah, I will say she went on to be appointed by President Roosevelt to be the U.S. delegate to the Peace Conference in Buenos Aires. Uh, She was an official delegate to the 8th Pan-American Conference in Peru. She served on numerous boards, both local, national, and international. She gave speeches all over the country, all over the world. She received honors and awards from multiple countries, but she never stopped working with the Neighborhood House. Wonderful. Uh, She joined the Unitarian Church in 1940, uh, and then she ended up dying in 1967, and she's buried next to her husband in Wasatch Memorial Lawn in Mill Creek. See, these are these little threads you can just keep pulling at and gathering so much, um, just strong stories of human life, uh, all because of your interest in cemeteries, Amy, as well as the thousands of listeners who I'm sure also love cemeteries. Um, This is a story of so many people who are not in the history books. Um, So I just think it's wonderful that you uh, share these stories. Um, Let's do one more as we close out our podcast, Amy. Yeah. So this is a story I actually pulled out and I I put together for um, Fort Douglas Cemetery Tour, which was at the end of October. They and do that's that event annual year. every yes. year. And what a great cemetery. I mean, there's oh, it's a great Italians and, uh, and German uh, POWs that are there, and uh, not to mention uh, military uh, burials in a beautiful park setting. Yeah, they do this event every year. It's kind of a commemoration of their founding day because uh, Camp Douglas was founded in October of 1862. And so... Uh, I pulled this out. Uh, it was one of, I did a tour on the evolution of military headstone design, how features about those headstones has evolved and what they tell you uh, at different time periods. And I 
pulled out one specific one that uh, was one of my stops just because that was convenient location. And yet, what a great story I found. Uh, this is Leopold Anton Yost. He was born in 1881 in a little town called Polna, Czechoslovakia. And he immigrated with his family in 1885. They settled in Rock Falls, Iowa. His father became a farmer, and that's where they stayed. His parents stayed. But Leopold enlisted in the Army in 1904. And according to news reports, his daughter says that he lied about his age to get in. But if you do the math, that's not quite correct. He was definitely over 18. But he went on to serve in the Philippine Islands from 1905 to 1912. He was then transferred back to the States where he served along the Mexican border during the Mexican Revolution. Uh, he met his wife, Adele Josephine Pudel, who was also born in Austria. And they married in San Francisco in 1914. They had three daughters, Adele, Helen, and Gloria. After the birth of his second daughter, uh, Leopold was fighting in France for World War I. He, he was so well-known because... He not only was a great soldier, but he was, um, he did the bands. He was an army band leader. And some wonderful generals in World War I recognized him. He was, you know, General Pershing called him the greatest um, army band he'd ever heard. Mm. Uh, so he got bestowed a lot of um, accolades that way. But when he returned, uh, the family got stationed at Fort Douglas in 1922. And that's where his third daughter, Gloria, was born. Leopold was a self-taught trumpet player and a renowned band leader for his 40-year army career. But his private life, he also served as director of the El Kalal Temple Shriners Band. He was a Shriner. He was a Freemason. Uh, he was so well-liked. The Shriner Band, the El Kalal Shriners Band, played at civic engagements all over the state. Just a big part of our uh, history, particularly in the 20th century, the the Shriners of Utah. The governor liked him so well that he pulled some strings to make sure he got, he remained at Fort Douglas and he didn't get transferred elsewhere. His retirement originally in 1941 was short lived because the U S then entered into world war II and he was called back into service. How old uh, was he then? He, well, I'd have to do the math, uh, but he, he was had already yeah. <laughs> over 30 years. Yes. Um, he did retire for good in August of 1945. He retired as a chief warrant officer and the army band leader. Uh, he had a member of a lot of different organizations, Elks Lodge, accepted the free and accepted Masons, the progress lodge. I mean, he had a lot of uh, affiliations. Real joiner and engaged with so many civic groups. Yes. Yes. Um, he just became known throughout not only the army, but the state, a lot of personalities. He was so um, popular, but what I found really interesting about Leopold. So he died in 1951. He got buried in Fort Douglas cemetery. Uh, he's in between his daughter, Gloria and his wife, Adele, but Gloria died in 1946, if I'm remembering right. And he's buried next to her. And in military cemeteries, it doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. You, uh, the children are eligible to be buried in military cemeteries of, of um, active uh, military personnel or retired personnel, but they tend to have their own little section and it's you get buried where they tell you you're going to get buried, much like army life is. They tell you what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. But he got buried next to his daughter years later and then another 20 years almost his wife died and she's buried next to him. So they saved those spots for Leopold. Must have been because of his 
because he was very well liked and yes. very well known. But yet, I think a lot of what these uh, stories that I highlight also tell me is these amazing people who were born in other countries who came here for a new start, a new life, whether they were three years old or 19 or older, and that they made an impact in their communities, that they served their communities in so many different capacities, whether it was fighting for women's right to vote, whether it was um, elevating women's issues, or whether it was playing in a band that brought a lot of spirit during the war. I mean, Leopold fought he was a soldier. He fought in those wars, but he also knew that music was a big part of that morale. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they just made such an impact on our communities. And while he, you know, didn't, he came here via the military to Fort Douglas. He mm -hmm. did that. Uh, he stayed and but he the, made his Utah life his was home. made here. This was and his, his home. Daughters, his older daughters um, are buried in Bountiful, but they never have any children. So there's no grandchildren to go visit their graves and, Leave them a penny to let them know they were there. Uh, <laughs> uh, Amy, tell us again the website, uh, the or the uh, URL for this database. It's history.utah.gov forward slash cemeteries. Thank you. Amy, it's been a pleasure to have you on Speak Your Peace. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Westwood, and we're so grateful that you're here listening to this podcast. Speak Your Peace is a podcast where writers, historians, and contributors to Utah's history share their insights and discoveries. We hope you'll take a, a listen again in the future. Amy Berry, thank you again for being a part of this podcast. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone. I hope you'll listen again.